0: Okay, We're going to do something a little bit different, but also very the same. Uh, we are going to look at the issue of assurance and how we can enjoy, experience assurance of salvation, even in um, young faith. But we're going to look at it from kind of a historical perspective. So, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I actually really enjoy history. I really enjoy church history, particularly. And And today, as I talked about earlier it is a very uh, historic day in the life of the church this is a, a day that's celebrated by uh, many many people in the Christian faith um, and it's particularly precious to us because it's the day on which we, we we think about the significance of the Reformation so we're going to talk about assurance and the Reformation uh, why was the Reformation important and I want to particularly answer the question why does the Reformation matter for your assurance? I'm actually convinced it has everything to do with your assurance of salvation, and that's why that's one of the reasons why it's really important. We've been, of course, talking about assurance. We've been talking about how assurance comes from fruit in your life. Assurance also comes from faith in your God as you grow to know Him. Your assurance of your faith grows as well. Um, but... We should be very clear, and even thinking about these things from a a perspective like this makes it very clear in my mind that assurance is primarily an issue of getting the gospel right. When you don't get the gospel right, when you don't understand what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, you will lack assurance of your faith. And actually, as we look at this issue from a kind of a, a church history perspective, I was kind of curious to see how, hey, a lot of the issues that were facing the church, I kind of think are creeping back in a little bit um, as we get away from getting the gospel right in our world today. So let's look at this. We're going to answer two questions this morning. Uh, Question number one, what did assurance look like before the Reformation happened? So we're going to be looking at the Dark Ages, what some historians call the Dark Ages, some people call the Middle Ages. Uh, Dark Ages we'll go with this morning. What did assurance look like before all of this Reformation business occurred? And what do the doctrines of the Reformation, also known as the five solos, mean for your assurance? So what did assurance look like before the Reformation? And what did assurance look like as a result of the gospel that was rediscovered? at the Reformation. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this moment that we get to just dive into a little bit of history here and consider this um, idea of assurance from a historical perspective. I pray that we would be helped and encouraged, not by history, not by the words of men, but by your words and your words alone from scripture. We pray all this in your son Jesus's name. Amen. All right. Question number one that I'm going to seek to answer for you. What did assurance look like before uh, Martin Luther came around with his, his hammer and his nail and pounded 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. What did assurance look like before John Calvin? What did assurance look like before Zwingli showed up on the scene? What did assurance look like in the Dark Ages? Um, now, Dark Ages obviously is a, a bit of an unkind title, I'm sure. It implies that there was a bit of ignorance in the Dark Ages. It implies that there was a little bit of of darkness, of of bleakness, of badness to the Middle Ages. And I'm totally fine with that, because it was. Every time I read about the Dark Ages, I'm like, good title, good title. And um, I'm not too afraid of offending anybody from the Dark Ages, because there's no one left to whom I may offend. So we'll go with Dark Ages this morning. Um, There... There were, there were uh, various elements that led to bleakness, ignorance, and despair, spiritually, in the Dark Ages, and this is the world in which the Reformers lived. Um, first off, I want to just describe the times a little bit. I'm going to describe the times in, in several different ways, and then once again, we're describing the Middle Ages before the Reformers, what was going on in the world, what was going on in the church, what was going on in the theology that the church uh, presented. Um, and I'm just going to describe it in, in kind of like three or four statements. First off, the times were black themselves. They were a dark time. It was a black time, a, a, dis, a, dis, a time of despair, a, a time in which you had the deep impression in your mind that God must be angry with me. If you were a commoner, if you were a peasant, you just had this basic conclusion, God must be angry at me. It was a dark time. And there was various reasons for this. A lot of a lot of problems were happening in this time period. For one, there was there was the issue of hunger that was seeming to compound itself. Um, there were a lot of agricultural problems. They couldn't keep up with the, the demand of food. And even when uh, food was harvested, sometimes um, crooked crooked uh, kings, crooked rulers, took advantage of that and and kind of. Um, took it all for themselves, and people were hungry. There was massive famines that were happening in the 200 years leading up to 1512, 1517, which is where we kind of of mark the day of the Reformation beginning. Um, There were various famines. There were bad seasons. And you know how those things go when there's a dry spell here here in California. It seems like we have uh, just... Ten years of dryness just after one winter of dryness, right? And so there was there was hunger issues. There were also wars and squabbles. This was the period of time when uh, there was a war happening called the Hundred Years' War. Can you imagine? hundred years of war. It was England versus France. Um, It was on and off again a little bit, but it was between the dates of, you know, 1337 and 1453, which is about a hundred years before kind of the time period of of Luther. And then there was also just like smaller wars happening throughout Europe as well. There were wars all the time. And there was a certain uh, feeling of vulnerability. There was a certain feeling of unsettledness to everyone's life, right? I don't know when a war is going to break out next. I don't know what's going to happen. That Also, also wars worked to you know uh, reduce the population. People died from that. People died from hunger. People died from war. Oh, and there was also this other thing that was going on in that time. This is particularly why I refer to this as a black time. There was something called a plague happening, called the Black Plague. Maybe you've heard about it. Uh, people actually now have, have realized that it was caused probably from rats coming over in ships. Uh, but at the time, nobody knew what was going on. All they knew that they were doing were they weren't washing their hands very well. Uh, But people were dying left and right. Some people have calculated that one-third to a half of Europe's population died from the plague alone. Um, So this was a, a black period of time. Death was everywhere. Suffering and difficulty was everywhere. People's basic conclusion was, man, God must be angry. God must be very angry at me to do all of this. And, I mean, we could say, well, yeah, God is angry. God is angry for sin. But there was a church there that was pretending to preach the good news about Jesus in this time, and they only compounded the issue. So not only do we see that, we see the times were black. We also see that the truth that the church had to offer in this period of time was bleak as well. It was a period of intellectual and spiritual blindness. Most people could not read. Most people had to depend on a professional, uh, a priest, uh, a church official, professional who could read. Matter of fact, I read some stories this last week. Um, that some of the priests, instead of learning the, the holy language, which was, uh, Latin, instead of even learning that, that was too hard to learn, they just decided to memorize the Mass in Latin. So they'd recite Latin, because it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter if you understood anything. It just mattered that you said it. But they didn't even understand the words themselves, some priests. So there, there was this, there was this massive gap, because people couldn't read at all. And then also, the, the, the religion of the day was, was being done totally in a foreign language that nobody understood. And the church was fine with this. Understanding wasn't important. In the church's mind, you just had to be present. You just had to experience something that happened in the church service. You didn't have to understand any truth. That wasn't as important. What was important was what this priest was doing with this cup and with this bread. The truth was bleak. The truth was bleak indeed. And, and we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, the church um, had this system of salvation that was dependent on this thing that we call the sacraments. Matter of fact, in 1215, remember 1217 was when Luther um, nailed the 95 theses on the door. Of uh, 1215, there was a council, a church, a Roman Catholic church council called the Fourth Lateran Council. And they declared that all of the sacraments, all of the sacraments were essential for salvation. At this council, this Fourth Lateran Council, they basically declared that salvation is found in nothing else but in the doors of the church. You have to come here and be present for all of the sacraments, or at least as many sacraments as you can grab, in order for salvation to be worked on. So that's that's what they're saying. Salvation is in us and in nobody Else. What were these sacraments of salvation? Well, this is kind of funny. And my history teacher at a seminary I always pointed out that, now notice, you can't have all of these at the same time. You act, it's actually physically impossible to have all seven sacraments at the same time. It is impossible to get assurance of salvation. Uh, the sacraments were baptism. This would be infant baptism. And it was believed that infant baptism removed original guilt from you and, in order, and allowed you to kind of start out in an ability to kind of work your way towards righteousness. That was infant baptism. And then we had confirmation. This happened later. And it was thought in confirmation that you were given a special kind of endowment or gift of the Holy Spirit that helped you obey and then, of course, after that, there was penance. Anything that you didn't cover with baptism or confirmation, then you just have to confess or do something to work towards righteousness. Confession, indulgences, that is, paying for the, the Pope to kind of give you a, a little bit of grace, a little bit of goodness, uh, that was all through penance. This was all after baptism and confirmation. And, and notice, the way you worked on your salvation was was always well. I, I've got to keep working, right? There is never there was never one moment in your life that you said, "Hey, hey, I have received this grace. Now I, I, I don't need anything else to be right before God." It's always well that this grace has covered my past sins. I've still got future sins to worry about as well. There's penance. There's of course the what is called the Eucharist, the Mass. This was of course a repeated, a repeated unbloody sacrifice re sacrifice of Christ on the actual altar that was at the center of the church at that point and 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 people would take the cup and the the bread and they would in 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 a sense through this doctrine called transubstantiation uh, receive a little bit of grace from a repeated sacrifice for sin um, that Christ is making and another Another sacrament that the Church has, and these are all sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church still holds to today, is marriage. Marriage was a, uh, a means of God's grace in your life. And they also said ordination, holy orders, were also a means of God's grace. Now notice, if you know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, you can't be married and be a priest at the same time, right? So, there you go. Bam. I can either choose to be a priest and get grace, or I can choose to get married, but I can't be both. Um, and then also there were last rites. They, gave special, they sp- gave special grace to those people that were sick and dying. These were all the means of grace. And not the means of grace that we think of when we think of means of grace. These were ways in which you built up an account of righteousness before God. And then the hope was, hey, at the end of all this, maybe my good things will outweigh my bad things and God won't be as angry at me as he was before. Remember the times that they lived in, right? Right. It was a time where people were just impressed upon with God's anger towards them, right? They didn't separate the spiritual and the physical. They didn't uh, separate the spiritual and the secular. Everything was spiritual. Everything was God is angry with me and I'm just slowly working my way into his favor. That was their system of salvation. And just just a little thought here. The Roman Catholic Church is not a Christian church. It is a pagan church disguising itself as a Christian church. The The Roman Catholic Church has always been, I've heard it described this way, a chameleon, right? They conform to whatever the religious norms are of the people that they are surrounded with. So, here in America, they look very uh, evangelical, right? They, they, they go to church, they... They, they worship Jesus just like we do. But if you go to South America or if you go to you know, the, the dark Middle Ages, you'll see a very pagan, a pagan church that has idols and images everywhere. And they're worshiping them as if they are idols and images everywhere. Once again, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't care about truth. It doesn't care about knowledge. It doesn't care about what the gospel actually says. It cares about an experience. It wants to develop in you a feeling of devotion for God. Feeling of devotion. Uh, You're always working to make yourself righteous before God. And there was also this this image of God that that was... kind of strengthened in all of this. Uh, Despite Jesus being seen as on the cross, suffering again and again, the the, the continual image uh, that people had of Jesus was not as some kind and compassionate sacrifice for sin. They saw him as a doomsday judge, and they were terrified of Jesus, right? That is how people felt. I am fearful of Jesus. He will not accept me unless I am completely righteous. So people had had a way to kind of work around this in order to please Jesus, in order to get Jesus' attention, who can I call? Who can I who can I reach out to? Who has Jesus' ear that will that will, you know, plead for me on my behalf? Well, Mary. He'll, he'll listen to his mother, Mary. He'll, he'll listen to her. So people started praying to Mary to try to get in good with Jesus. But then as Mary got elevated to higher and higher levels, suddenly, well, now Mary's not going to even listen to me. Who should I talk to to get Mary's attention? Well, I'll go to, to Anne, Mary's mother. So it just keeps going and going and going. And you're praying to all sorts of saints. And this is, this is all because, because all of these sacraments did was instill in you. And strengthen in you a realization of your guilt and of your sin. That's all they did. And the only picture people had was a gloomy picture of a God that was angry. Now once again... That is, there is a level of truth to that God is angry with sinners every day, the psalmist tells us, but this is from the church that is supposed to have the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead they are presenting a different gospel, a gospel of works. The, the times and the truth were bleak and they were black. You had zero assurance. Death was everywhere and doom was everywhere. People were in despair. And not only that, not only that were the times black, but the the theology was bleak, but also the 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 leadership of the church was just bad <laughs> that's That's the best way you can describe it um, the The men who were leading the the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation were not even christian if If I was to define them in any sense, they were corrupt, they were ruled by politics and greed, and they wanted power, and that's what you see again and again and again. Matter of fact, one one writer said uh, what was going on in Rome was worse in many ways than what today is happening in Vegas, and I'll prove it to you. Um, There were a few popes, particularly in the 14th century, that is 1300s, and in the, the 15th century, that's the 1400s, that's always been confusing, but that there were certain popes in those periods of times that were particularly bad. Uh, the, the hundred years before Luther were particularly bad days for the papacy, you'd say. Uh, there was one pope called Alexander VI. Um, this, he was, remember this, he was considered the vicar of Christ, which is a term used to refer to the representative of Christ on earth. This is the pope, the head of the church, and, and here it is. He bribed his way into office. Once he got into office, he he was rumored to have a mistress and also thought to have fathered uh, numerous children in his office. And also he was known for such wild parties in his um, house as well. That was the Pope, the representative of Christ on earth. And then there was another Pope called uh, Pope Julius II. He was known as the fearsome Pope or the warrior Pope. Pope. He was known for his brutal political tactics in crushing his enemies. Um, matter of fact, there's this funny story uh, from an unknown author um, that is pretty obviously Erasmus, um, and I, a guy who was actually favorable to Roman Catholicism. But he wrote this. He secretly wrote this account called uh, "Julius Excluded from Heaven," and it's this. It's this uh, kind of joking story of this Pope coming to the gates of heaven with his, you know, bands of armies, because that's how he gets into every gate. And he's like, well, open up the door. Why is it locked? And, and um, the apostle Peter jokingly says, "Well, you don't have the right key." He was like, "I've always used this key for every single other door I've always gotten into. No, you don't." And so there was this, there was this almost recognition by people who understood what was happening that this guy is no good, he shouldn't be in heaven. Um, there was also Leo X. Um, he's an interesting Pope. He was an agnostic. He didn't even believe that God could be known. How in the world did he become Pope Well? When, that was the, the nature of the times. Um, the popes were bad. Uh, they were more and more dominated by the politics of the office and less and less by the truth of the office. And, and matter of fact, at one point, there were three different popes at one time, all excommunicating each other. Uh, it, it was clear to everyone that something was rotten in the state of Rome, and everybody had a problem with it. Many people in the church had a problem with it, in fact. Many people thought, "Hey, we need to we need to restore the church to a level of dignity." But nobody was looking for a reformation necessarily. They just wanted to kind of beautify the church again. As a matter of fact, this was the church's conclusion: "Hey, we've got a problem. Nobody respects us. People are starting to question um, the validity of this this office of the papacy." So there was this strategy that they put in place in an effort to kind of restore the respect of the church. And of everything, they, they thought, hey, let's just start doing some massive building projects. Let's, let's build up this, this great cathedral in Rome called Peter's Basilica. But the problem was they, they couldn't do this because they had no money. So they had to start finding ways to make money in order to dump money on their external religion in order to impress people, uh, with their outward look. But what, well, The problem was, once again, that Rome didn't have any money. They needed to make money, and this is where they got creative, and this is where we get to the days of Luther. People were very eager to get grace. Like I said, your spiritual position before God was continually trying to accumulate more and more grace for your account, so that your good would outweigh your bad. That was basically the thought. People feared, had a had a great fear of death. Not only were they going to meet their judge, but there was also a teaching about this place called purgatory. And the essential uh, idea behind purgatory was, hey, if your good doesn't outweigh your bad, if you don't have excess righteousness in your account, we'll just put you in the oven for a little bit longer. You're going to suffer in a hell-like but not hell place. And you will be cleared through years and years, hundreds of years of suffering before you can actually go into God's presence. Now that's, that's a, a thing to look forward to upon death. Your life stinks, and when you die, it'll stink for even longer in order to uh, purge you of sin. So people were very eager to try to find a way to get and obtain grace. And the papacy had a great way to give you grace. They had this sweet little doctrine called the treasury of merit. And in this doctrine, the basic idea was, hey, some people have been so righteous in their life that they actually got to heaven and had excess righteousness. And now the Pope has access to their excess righteousness that he can bestow on whoever he wills. And so the idea was, you know, you... You, you pursue these means of grace, you pursue penance, and you pursue this thing called indulgences, basically giving the Pope some money, and he will pray for you or give you a bit of grace in your account from this excess grace in heaven. Sound kind of sketchy to you? It sounds just a little bit to me. And so there were these men going around in the days of, of Luther in particular, trying to, remember this, make money to kind of restore the image of Rome, but they were doing it selling indulgences to the the poor, uh, those people that didn't know how to read, perhaps, but everybody was eager to do this. So that's where we meet the man, John Tetzel, and he was famous for saying, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Simply by paying money, you could speed up your time in purgatory or speed up some, one of your relatives' time in purgatory. So this is putting people in a position, hey, I love my relatives that just died. If I just, you know, uh, spend a little bit of money, spend a little bit of my savings, spend a little bit of my money that I don't really have for myself, I can release my loved ones from purgatory. Now, there was an unseen problem at this time that the the Pope and John Tetzel and everybody that was doing this did not anticipate. And the unseen problem was that at this very time that these men were going around selling these things in Germany, Luther was studying the gospel. Luther was studying the books of Romans, Galatians, Psalms, Hebrews, and their original languages, and he was teaching them. And he was beginning to understand the gospel. He was finally realizing that there was a truth in the gospel that he did not know before. Matter of fact, it is an amazing, it's an amazing story to hear Luther even say it. But turn over to Romans 1. Look, turn over to Romans 1, verse 16. Now, remember all of this background that we just heard about God's righteousness and, and 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 attributing God's righteousness to his anger in judging you um, and and seeking to condemn you to purgatory or hell. And his righteousness was only seen as something through which he condemned people. That was the background of the time. And so Luther here, studying uh, letters like Romans, comes to verses in chapter 1, verse 16 and struggles over these words uh, Paul says this in Romans 1 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. He could not figure out how the righteousness of God could be revealed in the same verse that said, I am not ashamed from faith for faith. He could not get over that because, once again, the righteousness of God was a terrifying thing to him. I'm going to read you a quote. And it's from, it's from this book called Unquenchable Flame um, by Michael Reeves. Um, and he recounts this whole entire period of history and particularly uh, Luther's uh, struggling with this concept. And, and this is what Luther said. Though I lived as a monk without approach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, here's the important part, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not uh, blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed... It is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with fear, with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat Importantly, upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. So do you hear that? He is, he, he is frustrated. He is discouraged. This paints a picture of the despair of this time. And the the little to no assurance of this time. But Luther goes on to say, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That was a long quote. But you notice he said, for the longest time, I thought the righteousness of God was something that I had to achieve in myself actively in order to not fear a righteous God in judgment. But, but through reading Romans 1, 16 and 17, I came to understand that it was actually a passive righteousness, a righteousness that is given to me apart from who I am, apart from what I deserve. And then notice how he responds Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Right? Suddenly he gets the gospel right. He understands how this can work. And eternity is opened before him in glorious assurance and joy. That is what we see here. That was what Luther was studying, and that was what caused Luther to have such a consternation, such an irritation, such a frustration with the, the practices of the Roman Catholic Church in his time. And of course, this sparked a lot. This sparked a lot. Um, many factors, many factors sparked the Reformation, you could say, many factors. But the chiefest of them all was that this was all from the Book of God. This was all given to us in the gospel. This was all light in the truth of God. One of the phrases of the Reformation was, after darkness, light. Light has come. We were in darkness where we didn't know anything and we kind of had to feel our way towards God, but we found ourselves more and more troubled by our guilt the longer we felt. But now, in knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, light has come. And just like that, Just by understanding the gospel, Luther's world was turned upside down. And not only that, Luther went from being a pious monk in the Roman Catholic system to becoming the great enemy of the church itself. I'll read you one more quote. This is by Reeves himself, just saying this. What was it that got Luther in such big trouble in the Dark Ages? He says this, Teaching that a sinner... Merely by trusting Christ could, despite all his or her sins, have utter confidence before God. He had brought down on himself the fury of the church. He was teaching that you, despite your sins, can have confidence in God. That sounds like assurance to me, doesn't it? And that got Luther in such trouble. That got all of the reformers in such trouble. Why? because it was messing with the system of salvation that was giving some men power over other men. But that leads us to our second question. What is it? Oh, what is it about the five solas and the Reformation that gives us assurance? Why should you rejoice and be thankful to God for the men, imperfect men, who have been given to you as a gift to rediscover the gospel and pave the way for you? Well, because you can rejoice in assurance. Like Luther rejoiced in assurance. You can suddenly be born again in hope of heaven and not dread of God. The rediscovery of the gospel in the Reformation has been often stated in the five solas of the Reformation. These are statements, just kind of arguments that are direct direct arguments against what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. We're going to go through these quick, just so you know. They are sola scriptura, that is scripture alone, that is sola gratia, that is grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, that is Christ alone, and then soli deo gloria, that is for the glory of God alone. Those were the, the five statements that the ref, uh, the Reformers just generally held together as their arguments against the Roman Catholic Church. I want to look at what each of these mean very briefly and also how they connect to your assurance. Every single one of these has significance to your assurance of salvation. So let's look at that. First off, uh, solos um This is basically saying that scripture alone, alone is authoritative in the, in the truth of, of how we are made right with God. Scripture is authoritative, inspired, unfailing. Um, it is inerrant. It's without error. It is God breathed. It is pure. It is authoritative. It doesn't need to be added to. It doesn't need to be interpreted or re- reinterpreted by anything else. You can't put anything beside Scripture. Scripture alone is necessary. Now, this is directly attack against the Roman Catholic Church. Matter of fact, I pulled this quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So this is not like just some medieval Catholic Church. This is a present, current, contemporary Catholic Church. And they say this about the Word of God. The Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Scripture alone. Now, they're they're responding to this. Uh, Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. You have to hold both Scripture and tradition on the same level of sentiment and devotion. You guys know what that means, right? If anything is equal with Scripture... It has authority over scripture, right? That's what it's saying. That's what they are saying. You cannot, you cannot be saved by scripture alone. That is direct quote from the Roman Catholic Church catechism. But this is exactly what the reformers were stating. We believe these truths because of scripture alone. We do not trust in church history or the interpretation of the church in any of this. We want to go back to the sources and see what the Bible says. This is good news. This is good news for your assurance. How is is sola scripture good news of assurance? It means to you that the way of God, and, and the means by which you are declared righteous before God in Christ is fixed. It's fixed in God's word. It's unchanging in God's word. You do not rely on men or councils or popes who so often change their mind. You rely on the Word of God and what it says to you. Great assurance from Scripture alone. What about uh, sola gratia, which is grace alone? This is basically saying, by this they're saying, we, we believe that salvation is not by our will or by our works, but it is solely the free, sovereign grace of God given to us. Sometimes we want to boast in our works, don't we? Sometimes we want to boast in our will. Well, I chose God. But grace tells you none of that happened. Grace says God has sovereignly worked in your heart, opening your heart to the things of God and the truth of the gospel and caused you to rejoice in Christ, repent of your sin, and turn and be saved. You cannot trust in your will or in your works. God's free and unmerited favor is a free gift to you. That is grace. And this grace is freely offered, not by your will or your works, but solely by the freeness of God who gives it. But it is not something that comes to you cheap. Grace, if you look at grace throughout Scripture, it always comes, Old Testament, New Testament, grace always comes through a death, through blood. Grace comes to you because Christ Jesus died. And now you get free grace. What's the good news of uh, grace alone? How does that build in you assurance of salvation? It's the very fact that I cannot boast. The very fact that I cannot find any reason for boasting or bragging in what I have done or, or thought or said, but, but must attribute it all to the grace of God, the goodness of God, actually leads to more assurance of my salvation, right? Because it is not dependent on anything in me. I am tempted to doubt, actually, to whatever degree my salvation depends on me. But if it depends on grace, I cannot boast anymore, and suddenly I am flooded with assurance. That's solely a gratia. How about sola fide? This is faith alone. This free grace of the gospel is not offered to me by good works or a result of good works, but it is given to me, it is held on to me, by faith, not by things that I do, but by faith, by my, by my laying hold of the truth of God's word. The the Christian does not receive grace from God because they are purged from sin. The, The Christian does not receive the grace of God because they have done a bunch of good things. And at the end of the day, God says, well, I'll give you grace. The Christian receives God's grace up front Uh, by faith while they are still a sinner turn over to romans 5 turn over to romans 5 verse 1 paul is concluding this gospel that he has just described here in the last two chapters specifically but he says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, notice there, you are justified, you are declared righteous in God, and you, as a result, have peace in your life, peace in your life. If you need to leave, you can leave. Are you required Do you need to leave? You got a few more minutes? Few more minutes? Okay, all right. Uh, Luther has this great quote, great statement, where he says, this is who a Christian is. And I would want you to write this down. A Christian is this, at the same time, just and sinner. This is what it means to be a Christian. You are, at the same time, sinful and justified. You are justified in Christ Jesus, even though you continue to be a sinner. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that, hey, if you work, 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 at the end of the day, you'll finally get to be declared righteous. But in faith, we believe we hold on to Christ's righteousness by faith while we are still sinners. And in that, we have peace with God because Christ has died on our behalf. matter of fact, Luther also coined the phrase of the great exchange. Basically, all of my sin goes to Christ and he takes the wrath of my sin and all of his righteousness is given to me and I get the benefits of his righteousness as well. And Luther also was famous for uh, coining another phrase, referring to God's righteousness given to us as an alien righteousness. It's not our righteousness that we build up, but it's God's free gift, his righteousness given to us that we hold on to by faith. We are simultaneously sinner and saint, therefore, because we hold Christ's righteousness even in the darkest moments of our sin. That is assurance by faith. We don't ignore or explain away our sin. We confess it, but we also confess it while also laying hold of the righteousness of Christ by faith as well. Two more, real quick. Uh, Solus Christus, Christ alone, and Soli Deo Gloria. Basically, all of this, number one is attached to the finished work of Christ. Once again, the Roman Catholic Church taught that you had to have a repeated sacrifice, because once again, one sacrifice only atoned for a little bit of your sin uh, up to that moment. But in Christ, we believe that all of the blessings of God have been already given to us in Christ alone. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Christ, you are declared right before God and, get it, you are as righteous as you will ever be. You do not add or build on to the righteousness that you have in Christ. All of this, all of this grace, this free, free righteousness that you receive, this alien righteousness from Christ comes to you in Christ and Christ alone, not in yourself. And then finally, this is all for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. This is not for my glory, not for my boasting, not for my bragging, but it's for God's glory. And actually, there's incredible assurance in that, right? In my salvation, in my justification in Christ, in my final security in Christ, God has said, I am seeking my glory in the gospel. Not your glory, but my glory. And that attaches to it a certain power, a certain assurance. God will bring it to pass because God is determined to get glory from us. Now we can rejoice in the hope of God. Now we can rejoice. There was a quote that I alluded to earlier. This is a a quote from a favorite professor of mine when I was at Moody. He's now at TMS, actually. He said this, To the extent to which your salvation depends on you is the extent to which you will be tempted to doubt your salvation. The five solas of scripture show you it is not in me, but in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, by faith alone, grace alone. And we know this through scripture alone. And we can have bold assurance in that. That is where assurance comes from. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this message. Thank you for the reformation and the, the ability we have to stand on the backs of such men and rejoice in the hope of the glory of being with you in Christ Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.